0: This week on Writers, Inc. And so there wasn't a whole lot to do except, you know, read a lot and sort of pretend. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writers in.
1: How you doing today, JD? I'm doing well. You've been holding out on me, man. I, I went and <laughs> listened to this other podcast of yours, and like I, I'm like three episodes in, and I haven't I haven't turned it off. I'm like binge listening. Uh oh. Like. Yeah, and you and you've got there's background music going on. You're throwing on the full rock DJ voice like it, <laughs> we don't we don't get any of that over here at Writer's Inc. Uh, what what what's going on?
2: Oh, you must be talking about the Consequences of Rock podcast.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it <laughs> it's 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 bringing back a lot of memories because I used to work in that world, you know, in, in the music business and um just just hearing some of that stuff. I just finished up on the Kiss episode. Yeah. Um. So, so that's kind of where I'm at. Um. But I, I just I, I keep picking out the similarities. You know, and and I've noticed it before. But like, you know, there's a lot of similarities between the music business and and the writing business, or mm-hmm. just the people in general that succeed. Um. And you kind of brought this up. You know, with um <clears throat> talking about Gene Simmons with the the it factor. And one of the things that they used to do, because I I saw those guys way back in the day, um, but like I saw Guns N' Roses back, you know, it's very similar, like before anybody really knew who they were. Um, And these guys would play to a room of five people as if they were playing to 50,000. Yes. You know, and and, and it's a mindset, you know, I guess it, it comes back to that fake until you make it kind of thing.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. And, uh, and thanks for listening, by the way. I, I appreciate that. Uh, no,
1: it, it's good. If, any, if anybody loves music, they should definitely tune into that. I think they'll be into it.
2: Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of similarities because I, I think, too, especially if you're a, a lesser experienced writer, you're just starting out. Um, and I think you have this mindset. You clearly do. Like You have to assume success. Like You have to have a success mindset as opposed to a failure mindset. You have to think big, you have to think about what are the possibilities, even if you're not there yet, or you don't have the skill set yet, like these bands didn't, like these bands, you know, early on, they, they weren't uh, as proficient on their instruments as they would become, but they still had this mindset that we're going to be the best in the world. And I think you have to have that, sort, that level of ambition to have, to have success. Well,
1: every single one that I've met, like they they have that. Um, you know, like I mentioned before that I, I worked with um Brian Warner, who became Marilyn Manson um years back at a magazine called Twenty Fifth Parallel. And I remember the day where, where him and one of the other guys, they walked into one of the magazine meetings carrying lunchboxes. And like they, you know, like they created this image of what Marilyn Manson was gonna be and like, you know, and and just started marketing and thinking through like every little step that they did, you know, from what they would wear to, you know, even the names themselves that they came up with. You know, like every every little thing along the way, it's like they they planned it all out, and then you know it's it's the whole fake it till you make it thing, and it's not just you know these industries. Like I remember when I worked in the brokerage industry, um, you know they would tell like the new guys coming in, like these guys would you know they wanted to become stockbrokers, and you know they would pay them like you know ridiculously low amounts, like 150 a week or 200 a week, but they would tell these guys to go out and buy these expensive suits or lease an expensive car or do this or do that, and it would it would literally change their mindset where you start believing that that's who you are, and all all of a sudden you've got to catch up to it Um, and and like not having a fallback plan was, was the other thing. I mean, if you've got a fallback plan, you know, you're gonna fall back on it. You know, I I did it. And you know, I, I spent years working in the corporate world because I had a, a really nice salary. Like I had no reason to really, you know, drop everything and become a full-time writer until my wife pulled the trigger on it and kind of forced my my hand. You know, like I you know, we've talked about this before. Like I remember her showing the bank statement to me when we moved into this little duplex after selling everything. And she's like, Okay, looking based on this, you've got about 18 months to make the writer thing go before we run out of cash. Go. And you know, like you put your feet to the coals and like that that's where stuff gets done. You know Madonna got off the bus in New York with like 20 bucks or something in her pocket right. Like, there, there was no no other plan that, that was it. She had to succeed or you know she was gonna end up in a box.
2: Don't you find that's hard advice to give people though because it, it, they almost interpret it as you telling them to take unnecessary risk. but I totally agree. I was in this, I was in the same position like I I quit my job and and didn't have like six months of salary or a year of salary or you know a, a severance package. Um, but I feel like if I hadn't done that, I would not have invested myself completely in the new venture.
1: I, I think it just flips something in your brain you know, because there is no fallback. Like your your mind goes into overdrive going, okay, I've, I've got to make this work. Yeah. And, you know, your every waking thought is on, you know, that subject. How do I make this work? You know, if, if you've got a fallback, you know, that's taking 40% of that away. It's taking the risk away. And, you know, it's just that there's not quite as much reason there to succeed. Um, you know, that being said, it's, you know, it's a young person's game, you know, like <laughs> I've got a daughter now, like, I don't know that I would have been able to do this, you know, even what my wife did. Um, you know, if we had a kid at the time, I don't think I would have been able to walk away from that. There's just too much responsibility. You know, it's one of those things I think you, you really need to decide, you know, like fresh out of college where, you know, you're just paying rent and you don't have a whole lot of you know things that are people or whatever that are dependent on you, you know, where, where you can do that because it gets harder and harder as, as life moves on. It, it can always be done. I mean, there's, there's, there's never a, it's never too late, you know, to, to fall back on your dream or, or try and make something like that happen. But it definitely gets harder as the, the years
2: go by. Do you think you can simulate it or trick yourself into that mindset without having that risk?
1: No. I, don't, I mean, cause you're, you're trying to fool yourself. Right. I yeah. mean, I, I think you could fool other people. Um, but you know, your brain is always going to know what's, what's really going on. I, I think, you know, like I, I looked at our bank statement, you know, every, every month, you know, at, at some points, you know, every, every week, you know, every day, <laughs> you know, watch it. Oh crap. We got to pay the electric bill. There goes another $250. You know, you see those things and like, it, it just, it keeps you going. Like, you know, I, I put in an extra couple hours of writing that night, you know, and that, that's, that's what it takes. I mean, Stephen King worked crappy jobs, you know, he, he didn't have to, but you know he did and I, I think you know he's working at a laundromat and like those kind of things they they force you to to really go home and and put your all into into whatever your your dream is
2: yeah and i'm not saying there's anything wrong with having a hobby or or watching television occasionally but it when you're in that situation it also really forces you to to evaluate what you do with your time. And and you have to ask yourself, like, is it worth me spending three hours on a Sunday afternoon to watch this football game when I know I've got this ticking clock going? And, And I think it really forces you to prioritize what you do with those precious minutes.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely does, but uh, you know, like I, in my own life, I, I try to get the writing done first thing in the morning, um, because I, I know like once I do that, then you know I feel okay about sitting down and watching TV or or playing with my daughter or, or doing whatever, um, because the work is done, um, you know, but there's plenty of writers out there that wait though, you know, they do it at night, you know, they they go through their their full day, they put their kids to bed, and you know, eight nine o'clock at night, they sit down at their desk, and I I don't know that I could do that because my. my- yeah, I would just yeah. be constantly thinking about, you know, I still got to do this. I still got to do this. <laughs> you know, like I, I, I need the, you know, the the end of the day to, to wind down and, and kind of get out of that, that mindset. Otherwise, I, I don't sleep. Yeah, so
2: true. Well, I'm excited for our guest today. Who do we got?
1: I am too. It's Riley Sager. And and congratulations, by the way, because his, his book is on the um, the New York Times list, or it, it was last week. I haven't awesome. looked at the, the latest one. Um, yeah. And it's a fantastic book. I blurbed it. I got a copy of it a while back. Um, yeah. He's just, he's, he's hitting them out of the park. I think this is what number four, I think now um, that he's, he's put out there and yep. just one better, better than the next. Uh, so I can't wait to hear from this guy cause he's, he's had a pretty rocky road to get to where he is, but, um, he, he deserves every second of it for sure.
2: Yeah. He's had some controversy and, and hopefully we'll get, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well.
1: Okay. Well, here he is, Riley Sager. Uh,
2: so you said that your book tour is canceled, which is pretty much a foregone conclusion, but, uh, is the release date for home before dark still set for June 30th, I believe.
0: It is still set for June 30th, yes. Ah,
2: good, good. So uh, this is a brand new book for you. Tell us about it.
0: Um, It is, it's a weird book within a book situation, which I've never tried before and really seemed interesting to do. Um, It was inspired by the Amityville Horror. And it's about um, this family. They move into a house in Vermont and... They leave after 20 days and the father writes a best-selling horror memoir about it that becomes like this worldwide phenomenon. And 25 years later, his daughter, who was five at the time, inherits the house after his death. And she's always thought this book was a hoax. So she goes back to the house under the, you know, the excuse, uh, I'm going to remodel it because that's what she does. She renovates houses. But really just to find out the truth about why they left and if her father's book is a lie. And when she gets there, she discovers that some things in his book might actually be true. Ah. And so it's her return to this house, alternating with the book her father wrote. The entire book her father wrote. So it is like literally like it is a book within a book.
2: Wow. How did you approach that uh, in in the writing and, and planning or any of it? That <laughs> sounds so complicated.
0: It, it was incredibly complicated. And I knew going in, it was going to be a challenge. Had I known it was going to be this huge of a challenge, I pr- probably wouldn't have done it. <laughs> but it, it was only when I was halfway through where I'm like, oh crap, this is a b- much bigger challenge than I thought it was going to be. It's too late now. I've got to push through. Um, There was a lot of planning involved, like literally months of outlining because I I wanted the present day stuff and her father's book because they alternate. So alternating chapters. So I wanted things to sort of reflect each other like a funhouse mirror, which meant getting a lot of pieces into place before even writing. So this thing was just outlined beyond belief. Like before, I even wrote it. Are so you? I, I, are you a natural outliner? I am, yes, okay. but not to, not to this extent. Yeah, like I joke that the outlining took longer than the actual writing. I believe it, it. It really did.
2: <laughs> wow. So, uh, draw the line for us from Amityville to to Vermont. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about how that story inspired you?
0: Well, with with Amityville, I think the general consensus is that. Eh, they made it all up and they just happened to get rich because of it and become infamous because of it. And they stuck to their story. I think both of the, the Lutz family, I think both parents have passed away now, but I think they stuck to that story until their last dying breath. And it just made me wonder why, like why would people create the story? Why would they adamantly defend this story that most people believe was a hoax through their entire lives. And that seemed very interesting to me. Like, Why would someone create this haunting?
2: Mm. So I'm, I'm also really curious about the stylistic choice you made. So you could, have, you could have done flashbacks, right? You could have just had a whole segment of flashbacks. So why did you sort of break out the past story as, as a memoir as opposed to uh, flashbacks?
0: Because I love a good, unreliable narrator. (laughs) And I thought that this was a pretty cool way to bring in an unreliable narrator, to have this book her father wrote in first person sort of be the unreliable narrator of this whole story. And then she has to spend this whole book figuring out, okay, what is real? What isn't real? What was he lying about? What's the truth? And there was just like this tension from the very beginning that I don't think would have been there had I told the story any other way.
2: Yeah, that's, that sounds amazing. Uh, can't wait for it, that should be good. I'm uh, very
0: excited about
2: it. Yeah, yeah, you also, but you have a, a number of things in the works. Do you have any updates on The Last Time I Lied as
0: far as Amazon Studios goes? Yes, and I'm I'm not sure, <laughs> with these kinds of things, Like, I'm not sure how much I can say. Right, as much say, as you can, right? <laughs> it's It's no longer at Amazon. Okay. It is now in development at another streaming service that rhymes with HitFix. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, well,
2: we won't tell anyone. So if you're listening to this, yeah, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anyone.
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome. What? Yeah. But for it is very cool. But for a lot of these things, like I don't really have much active involvement. Like, sure. All four of my books have have been optioned, and some are in various stages of development. Some are just stuck in development hell, and and so. And I I really don't have any part of the the process. Yeah. I didn't want I didn't want there to be like I I love movies I love TV I don't know the first thing about how they get made. <laughs> So, so I'm not going to march in there and be like, "No, you need to do X." Right. I don't know if X will work. So,
2: yeah. have you ever had any interest in writing screenplays?
0: I I have, and I I wrote a screenplay. Oh gosh, we're probably like talking 15 years ago. That just to see, like, can I write a screenplay? And mm. and nothing came of it, but it was it was good practice, and I I might. I have a couple screenplay, original screenplay ideas, like sort of rattling around up in my head that I might get to one of these days.
2: Good. So you might find yourself in a producer's chair at some point. You never know. Maybe. Yeah.
0: I'm I'm, I'm fascinated by the whole process, but it's all so intimidating.
2: Yeah. 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 I I think, too, uh, it's funny, you know, I. I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. I lived in New Jersey for a while. And uh, I think we probably share some of the same values just because of the geographic similarities. But I've always, I've always thought like, yes, green plays, you got to be living in LA to do that. Like, I don't know how you could do that from New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Ohio.
0: And, and I also know that Hollywood is just a weird fickle place. And, you know, just from, you know, my experience with some of my books, you know, like a book will be optioned and, Everyone's super excited about it for three months. And then that excitement just vanishes. And then it's just sort of stagnates. And, and so, and I know the same thing is with screenplays. Like you could write a great screenplay, and then you will get 50 producer notes and executive producer notes. And then uh, someone will come on board to rewrite it. And then there'll be a polish by someone else. And it doesn't even resemble the thing you originally wrote. And I'm not sure that I'm ready for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's a different beast. There's no, n- no really doubt is. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did you grow up in, in like mid-state PA? Is that how you ended up at Penn State?
0: Yes. I was. Um, I grew up about an hour and a half east of Penn State. Okay. Just right, right along Interstate 80. Yeah. And, and so, um, yeah, it was a... It's the smallest county in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, It's really the only town in the smallest county in the state of Pennsylvania. (laughs) And it just, it was, it was a good place to grow up in retrospect. At the time I was incredibly bored and just already like in my early teenage years, like, oh, there are much greener pastures out there. There's a big (laughs) wide world I want to explore. But it was, it was nice and it was safe. And I was able to let my imagination sort of run wild. And so it was, it was a good upbringing.
2: Do you think that was the fertile ground for uh, the imagination that comes through in so many of your novels? Oh, definitely. Yeah,
0: Yeah. there was one, there wasn't a whole lot to do. Um, We, my house and where my parents still live is literally surrounded by fields. Like on all four sides, there's a little dirt road that only last year finally became paved (laughs) And so there wasn't a whole lot to do except, you know, read a lot and sort of pretend. <laughs> yeah.
2: So how did you get from Penn State to the Star Ledger?
0: Um, it, it was it was weird. i in college. I was a film major, film studies, not film making. Okay. So it was just we'd watch movies and then write papers about them, and it was a wonderful. Major to have, but it didn't prepare me for anything. (laughs) But I got into the student newspaper there, which was a very big, well respected student newspaper. And I didn't even know that at the time. I just didn't like their film critic and thought, I'm going to do a better job as film critic. And I applied and got it. And so I was the film critic. And then I, you know, fell into journalism and I really liked it. And um, I was hired like right outside of college. To a newspaper in New Jersey, and then you know I just sort of left that for the Star Ledger, which is the biggest paper in the state, a Pulitzer Prize winner, and um, yeah, it was it was all a happy accident that lasted roughly 20 years.
2: <laughs> well, I it's so funny I wrote for the Pitt News when I was at the University of Pittsburgh, so I, I hope we can we can still have a civil conversation that you went to Penn State and I went to Pitt.
0: I, I have no no rivalries okay. with anyone. Yeah. <laughs> some people take their penn stateness very, very seriously. And I'm always like, whatever. Yeah, it's, I don't care
2: either. But some people, yeah. like you said, some people are pretty hardcore with that stuff.
0: You go where you go and you know, that's all.
2: Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna throw out a date to you and I'm gonna bet uh you're gonna be able to tell me exactly what happened on that day. You ready?
0: Okay, we'll see.
2: December twenty sixth, twenty sixteen.
0: Oh, yes. Oh, my.
2: There's
0: there's no forgetting that date. Um, that was um, when Stephen King tweeted about Final Girls. And it was the best Christmas present anyone could ask for. It was so unexpected. Um, I was actually in Pennsylvania visiting my family. And um, we stay at a hotel when I'm there. And we got back from spending all day at my parents' house, get back to the hotel room and I see an email from a friend of mine who's a wonderful author in her own right, Jennifer Hillier. And all it said was, I just saw Stephen King's tweet, congratulations. Well, instantly I start freaking out because I'm like, what did he tweet? What did he tweet? So I go (laughs) on the Twitter and just see him tweeting like this very amazing, nice thing about Final Girls. which was still six months away from publication and it just, it just gobsmacked. Like you, you don't expect that. And, and so I did like a happy dance around the hotel room <laughs> and then, you know, I called my parents and I don't think they quite understood the magnitude of it, and then I just went outside and I had just a moment of, of silence to myself. And then I, I cried a little bit, like happy tears, because I just knew my life was going to change. Yeah. Because, and, and it did. Like, the, I mean, the interest in that book, just because of that tweet, was astounding. Like, it was an entertainment weekly a couple weeks later, just because he tweeted about it. And and it just so many people like just were demanding advanced copies and there, it just was, it was crazy.
2: Wow. How, how long after that did you, uh,
0: become a full-time novelist? I was already before then. Okay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- through, yeah, I was, you mentioned the newspaper. I, the newspaper business was not booming. And so I was laid off from my newspaper job ah. and I, I spent a year of, of, Unemployment, pretty much, where the only job I could find was working as a library assistant at my local library. And I actually loved it. And I was writing Final Girls during that time. And as we were submitting it to editors, I knew okay, this could be kind of a big thing because my agent thinks it could be a big thing. Or I could just go back to school and get a degree in library sciences and become a librarian. And final girls was picked up by Dutton books and the advance was good enough for me to be like, okay, no need for library school. (laughs) (laughs) I can be a full-time writer now.
2: Wow. That's a fantastic story. I love that.
0: It was, it's, it is a cool story. Like I, I, at the time it was, it was pretty scary and uncertain. It was my, my year of, of, fear and uncertainty, but since it all worked out in the end, I can kind of look back with some fondness.
2: Yeah. Did you have a safety net? Did you have any savings? Like, or were you sort of like ticking time bomb? I got one year, I got six months to make something. happen.
0: It was, um, my husband was my safety net. And I hate to say that because I I tend to be a very independent person, but you know, when I was laid off, he sort of went over the finances because he's the money guy. And he was like, we'll be okay. I looked over everything and we'll be okay. Now, he didn't mean we'll be okay forever. (laughs) But, you know, for, you know, for like a year or so, he was like, you know, we've got this. But that year was kind of running out. And so I knew something had to change. Well, it's so so great to have that support. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean... To have a supportive spouse like that, because uh, I, I could imagine that conversation going a very different direction.
0: Yeah, and I was prepared to be this, okay, I will just, whatever job I can get, the first job I can find, I will I will be a greeter at Walmart. I will flip burgers, even though I'm a vegetarian. I will do whatever, you know, if we needed that money. but So for him to sort of be like, we've got time, did allow me to... You know, I was looking for jobs, but it allowed me to sort of be not picky as a word, but find something that was like a better fit for me. Right. And it allowed me, it gave me time to write Final Girls. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I I know this is a a question you'll probably have to answer for the rest of your career. And you you can feel free to go into as much or as little detail as you want. But can you talk about your uh, progression or decision around pen names and how you've used those in the past?
0: Oh, yeah, certainly. Um, so Riley Sager is a pen name, and I think most people do know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I think more people than not know my real name, but it was I I'd, I'd written um three books, and they just they just weren't selling. Like it just the advances were low, the sales were low, and I I could have continued this way for years and nothing would have changed. And so it really became, what do I want out of my writing career? Do I, and I I wanted to support myself through writing, which is I think a lot of authors, you know, that's, that's the end goal, like be a full-time writer. And it was more of a, it paid like a hobby (laughs) or, and, and it was a lot of, time and work for what was very little pay. And so when final girls was written, I really wanted to put my name on that book and my edit, my agent said, listen, this is what's going to happen. We can put your name on this book and every editor we submit it to, will probably look at your past sales and they will probably make an offer based on those past sales. And they probably won't, promote the book and you will be in the same boat you are now. And this book deserves better. And when she put it that way, I just sort of knew like, yeah, we need to do a pen name and we did it blind. Like we submitted to editors blind. They knew Riley Sager was a pen name and that was it. So they had to judge the book and base their offers just on what they thought was the quality of the book and not on anything else. And so there were four editors who were interested and I had conversations with them, with them not knowing my real name. And so that was surreal to have these complete strangers on the phone calling me Riley. (laughs) And, um, we, I, I, the, the editor I spoke with from Dutton Books, I loved her immediately and they made the highest offer and it was just like, it was go time after that. So it was, it was very much a business decision. And I think when I tell this story, I, my goal is to sort of shed light on the fact that a lot in publishing are based on business decisions. I think people like to talk about the craft and the artistry behind writing, but if you don't focus on the business side, you're destined for failure.
2: I I love... Uh, I'm so fascinated by your story. I mean, I, I knew sort of the gist of it and, and and you know, the pen name. Um, were you at all worried that some of the acquiring editors wouldn't be interested in talking to, to a fictional author? Like, is there any concern that they, they want to know who's behind the pen?
0: I... I wasn't, although I suspect that there were editors who just said, no, we're, we're good because my agent did say like, you know, I'll give you more information if you express interest and I won't tell you everything until you make an offer. And I, so there might've been some editors who just balked at that. My, my agent is very good. She never tells me the rejections. (laughs) She just tells me the yeses. And that really helps me from getting discouraged. It's helped me in my, my, and it's been this way since we've been together for 10 years now. And it's been this way since the very beginning. She's just like, I'll just, let's just focus on the positive. So you're not going to hear about the no's. Just assume they're out there and let's just focus on the yeses.
2: And how did you, how did you land on Riley Sager?
0: Um, my agent suggested, she's like, let's come up with something gender neutral which did cause some controversy (laughs) later, which we'll probably get to. Um, But she suggested maybe an old family name. And so Sager is my maternal grandmother's maiden name. And I said, well, this is this. She's like, I love it. It sounds old fashioned. And so for the first name, I was going to use initials and I was going to use RL because my father's name is Ray. My mother's name is Linda. And I'm like, Oh, that's a nice nod to them. And then RL Stein, of course has the market on RL. Right. And so I went, Oh crap. I'll have to do something else. So a quick look at like most popular gender neutral baby names. Riley was like at the top of the list. I'm like, that's sort of RL ish. And so Riley Sager, that's what it became. And it's, it's really, really worked out for me so far.
2: Yeah. What was the controversy? Can you talk about that?
0: Um, There was, I inadvertently became like the poster boy for men writing under gender neutral <laughs> names. <laughs> <laughs> it was um, my, my publicist was like, let's pitch a story about men writing under gender thrillers under gender neutral pen names. And the Wall Street Journal did an article and they interviewed me and um, AJ Finn and um, I'm blanking on their names, but the guy who wrote Before I Go to Sleep and oh, and JP Delaney. And so like they interviewed all of them, but they took my picture. <laughs> and and so it, and it ran on the front page, like the bottom of the front page. And there was me. And so I like when, and, and the article, like it, it was a very good conversation with the reporter and I gave a lot of good quotes. And then the finished product really only focused on the fact that I didn't have an author photo, which was the publisher's decision. And they looked at my Instagram and just said, like, oh, there are no pictures of him on his Instagram. And I'm like, I don't like getting my picture taken, to be honest. <laughs> and and so so in, in the article just sort of implied, like, oh, he's pretending to be a woman to fool people into selling books. And then it was picked up by Jezebel. And then it was picked up by somewhere else. And then The Atlantic, the,
2: I think I saw it on the, the Atlantic. The Atlantic
0: did an epic length thing about, like, this phenomenon. <laughs> right. And they never once contacted me they never asked me for a quote or to explain the situation and so for for a good month or two there was this sort of mini backlash of like oh he's just pretending to be a woman to fool us into buying his book and that just it wasn't the case at all and <laughs> and so that's why I, i'm really happy to like just talk about it. it's like yeah i'm a guy i'm not hiding this fact that i'm a guy Here's my profile photo now. See everyone. (laughs) So it just, so at the same time, I do understand where, you know, some of this controversy would come from because, you know, women dominate the thriller genre right now because there are some amazing women authors out there kicking butt and I could sort of see this idea of like, oh, these dudes see this, and now they're sort of encroaching in yeah. on our turf. And it really wasn't that; it was like, I love this genre. I love what you're doing. I really want to be a part of it. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's good, and it worked out for you. So who cares what those magazines and papers right? Yeah, and, and <laughs> that's
0: and and that that's all like in the rearview mirror now. Nah. At, nah. at the time, I was a little bit, you know, my publishers were like, just don't say anything. All publicity is good publicity. Just stay quiet and do what you do. And I was like, I'm getting riled up. <laughs> but now, yeah, now it's just, it's, it's all, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I, I know, um, in a very old blog post, probably nine or 10 years old, you said you're a night owl. Uh, and I'm curious if you're still a night owl, um, or when do you do your writing? Do you have a specific time, a certain place? What's that look like on a
0: day-to-day basis? Um, I am no longer a night owl. Now I'm in bed. I'm in bed by 11. (laughs) Um, Because at the time I was, I was still working in newspapers and I worked usually from about three to 11. And then I'd, I'd get home, you know, like 1130 or midnight. And, and then I would be up writing until like two in the morning. And, now that's changed. Now I have literally all day to write. and so I, I try to get my writing done in the afternoons um if I'm on deadline, I will be writing from the moment I wake up until the moment I go to sleep at 3 am and that <laughs> happened with home before dark. <laughs> there were days where it just was like you know, sometimes it was like a 15 hour writing day just Ooh. because I, I had to meet that deadline. Um, so I, I do try to yeah make my afternoons useful. Like mornings are, you know, exercise and catching up on, on businessy things and emails and things like that. And then afternoons are, you know, just spent creatively. And then evenings are just spent detoxing from all the creativity that has to go on. To fully immerse yourself into a book,
2: yeah. Do you think that's because you like to sort of clear the decks before you sit down to do your creative work? Do you think that's why you're writing in the afternoon as opposed
0: to the morning? I think so too. Yeah, just to I I can't just turn it on. Like I I need to have some coffee and some breakfast and some time where it's not just instant writing. I need to ease myself into it, and then in the evenings it just the thing about being a full-time writer is that it is literally full-time Like That book is always in your head. Even if you wake up at four in the morning thinking about the book and you can't get (laughs) back to sleep. And so you do need time to just try not to think about the book. So, you know, that's why I like in the evening to have a good cocktail or two and then watch something on TV and just read a little and just, yeah, try to clear my head from all the work of the afternoon.
2: I was going to say maybe watch a little Hitchcock. I know you're a big fan, but I don't know if that would help clear your head or not.
0: It, sometimes it does. Sometimes it's like, oh, I've got a good idea for something. And then it just, the we'll start turning again. And that's no good. <laughs> well, excellent. As we kind of pull
2: the conversation to a close, I have uh, one last question for you. That's just kind of open-ended. You can answer it however you want, but even before the pandemic started, uh the publishing industry is in a state of transition to, to put it mildly. Where do you think this industry is headed uh in the next say five or ten years? That's a very good
0: question. Um I think everyone will still be buying books. I mean, with the I remember my first book was published right as E-readers and ebooks were becoming a thing, and everyone was just in this state of panic. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen? Are they are are they not gonna print books anymore? And and it really just enhanced things, I think. It just gave people another way to consume books. And so I, I don't think that will change. Um, if anything, I think we'll have to get more creative. Um, I, I know like in terms of just promoting books, technology has been a great thing where we now, we, we now can do virtual book tours and virtual visits to libraries and social media. You're connecting with readers like never before, but I also think we're getting more inventive in terms of just how do we make books stand out? And, you know, for an example, like home before dark, the cover is going to glow in the dark. And when I heard that, mind blown, I, I couldn't stop giggling over it because I just thought it was such a cool, cool idea. And so I think we'll be seeing more things like that, like more add-ons or incentives or just cool little things to maybe bring people toward books more.
2: All right, that is the conversation with Riley. Uh, any really big standouts for you? <laughs> well,
1: first of all, like you got to read the, this latest book because the main character is renovating a house, and I <laughs> and I know Riley well enough to say that he was renovating a house while he was writing this book. Yeah, um, because I was renovating my house, and we were going back and forth talking about all these <laughs> these different things. Um, and it's funny how those those you know real life kind of creeps into the the story. Um, he mentioned you know, this is his first attempt at a book inside of a book. Um, I, I love doing that. You know, I, I did it with Forsaken, you know, my, my first book. I did it with Fourth Monkey. I, I love creating two separate storylines that eventually in my world they, they end up meeting you know, where they, the two complement each other and they kind of get closer and closer together until you hit the end of that book and all of a sudden they both become part of the same thing. Um, I, I love doing that. I mean, and he's, he's good at it. I mean, he's, he's, you know, this is the first one where I think he's really full blown done two separate stories. Right. Um, but all, all of his books tend to have, you know, multiple storylines, you know, kind of happening. Um. I, I think the previous one, um you know, he had like then and now type chapters, you know, like present day versus, you know, a couple, couple weeks back. And they, they kind of converged at the end, like that kind of thing. Um. But he's, he's a, a big outliner. And I, I know he's, you know, for a structure like that, sometimes you, you have to put it all down on paper first
2: yeah yeah he, he said that, that one was pretty extensive just based on the complexity of the story he wanted to tell
1: yeah yeah and, and another one of those guys where he said he had no fallback plan you know yeah. <laughs> we yeah, were, just, we're talking just talking about, about, about
2: that it. yeah exactly yeah
1: you know, I, I, I guess where it, that's where it comes from um it, It always cracks me up when, you know, writers, you know, and I do this too, you know, the studios tell us to be secretive, you know, when we've got stuff Mm. that's been optioned and and I don't know why, like I've, I've tried, I've, I've tried to figure this out. Like, why is this such a big secret? Why are we not allowed to do it? But you know, my agent, my film agent, they're always telling me, you know, this is going on, but you can't tell anybody. (laughs) Um, and, and, and I think, it, you know, now that I'm getting deeper into this, I think it's because these things change a lot. Oh. Um, like he had, he had mentioned going from Amazon to um, the, the other one. The other one that rhymes <laughs> yeah, with... Uh... It, it, yeah, it was a hit, hit flicks. Hit rhymes flicks. With hit flicks. <laughs> um, you know, that, that kind of thing happens quite a bit. Um, you know, like in, in my world, like I've got uh, Dracul right now is with uh, Paramount and you know like that that got scooped up like right away we had an auction for the film rights on it and you know, like the hype was just crazy and you know, we've got Andy machete you know attached to direct and like I thought for sure they were going to hit the ground running and start filming that right away um, as far as I know they, they haven't gotten past the first script on it yet it's still sitting with Paramount they keep upping their their option you know to keep re- redoing it um, but they haven't actually started filming um, and you know you start hearing rumors too like I had somebody who told me that Paramount just bought it to keep it out of Universal's hands oh. because they did want it for their their dark universe um, thing that they were trying to do with with all the monsters so you start hearing all these kind of things and um, you know and then people come at you you know can you write a script can you do this it's like it's i i prefer to just write the book i mean like Mm -hmm. so much of this stuff is noise like until you sit down and you actually watch the movie um yeah we talked to josh mallerman i know him pretty well and you know like I, i think he was watching bird box the movie and like still not sure that it was the bird box movie was going to happen yeah you know like he's watching it on tv like you know i think it's gonna happen but you know and it's done like you still don't feel like it's gonna gonna happen right um you know so i think that's a big part of it like there's you know there's such a small percentage you know like so many things get optioned and then yeah you know, and that's a small percentage of the overall number of books that are out there um but then you know even once they get optioned like actually getting made is another big hurdle that you got to try and jump through
2: yeah, yeah. He. Uh, I mean, we touched a little bit abo- upon the name controversy. Not that it was a big controversy, but I'm. Uh, I'd like to know what your thoughts are on on pen names and a debut author, and, and sort of the pros and cons of of uh, using a different name
1: well you know like i i didn't know you know riley before you know riley um you know we have got a lot of friends that are in common but i had never spoken to him before i think the first time we actually met was at uh, thriller fest when final girls was up for for Thrill of the year with which it won um and, and I actually, I thought it was a woman, um, you know, just because they were very careful about that. You know, if you, you look at those first couple books, there's no, I, I still don't think they use an author photo. Um, if you go to his website, it'll tell you, you know, who he is and that he was you know a journalist in the past and that kind of thing. Uh, but what really got me, and this, this really came out of the book, Dr. days, is his writing sounds very feminine. Um, and that, that's not an accident. Like there, there's websites where you can take blocks of text and, and I do this all the time where you can take, you know, a, a block of text and you can drop it in there and it'll tell you whether it, it leans negative, uh, female or leads, um, leans male, Interesting. Um, because there, there's certain word choice, certain you know, dialects, certain you know, cadences, things like that that tend to be you know, they, one gender or the other. Um, and, and Riley writes a fantastic female character. It, I, there was never any doubt in my mind reading that book that it was written by a female until I you know, realized who it was. Um, And he writes just a solid of a male character. I mean, don't get me wrong, but when I was working as a book doctor, I I used a lot of these websites because a lot of people would get it wrong. You know, like a, a male author would try to write a female character and it would come across as a male character. Um, with a female name, you know, or or vice versa. Um, It's a very difficult thing to capture. And what a lot of people don't realize is when somebody is reading a book, they tend to identify characters unless it's specifically drilled into their head, what that person is, they tend to identify based on the the author. So if the author is male, you know, so if a a character is written in first person, if you weren't going to use a name at all, you know, just everything was I, 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 um, you know, the the gender of the author is what the reader would basically have in the back of their mind. Um, So a lot of these things, they, they play a big part of that. So if you've got a male name on the front of the book and your lead character is female it can actually create a conflict in the reader's mind which is on a subconscious level but it, it will keep them from relating to that character because something will always feel off they, they won't know what it is uh, but but something just doesn't seem right um, so it's a difficult thing to capture and he's, he's very very good at it um, and you know more power to him I mean, i'm looking forward to the next book he's one of the few authors out there we just you know I, I i jump all over those books when they come out
2: yeah he was uh, I, I really enjoyed the conversation he was articulate and charming and i loved talking to him about you know being raised in rural pennsylvania and sort of what you know the impact that had on him as a creative and and how it you know it's still impacting him today and uh, and his time as a journalist with the star ledger i just thought he was a really interesting guy
1: yeah absolutely
2: cool so who's coming next week
1: uh, next week i'm looking forward to this one too we've, we've got uh I, I know i'm gonna pronounce this wrong i believe it's dirk Demers. Um, and I'm probably way off on that. Um, but he's, he's with a company called Prestozone, um, which I first heard about on the self-publishing formula. Um, you know, those guys interviewed him, and it's basically a tool to help you manage your, your Amazon ads. And I, I signed up for it right away um, because Amazon ads like their dashboard is a mess and just trying to understand them. I mean, there's so many moving parts, it's a very difficult thing. Um, and PrestaZone, it, it does a great job of, of not only making that information understandable, um, but it, it offers suggestions um, and you can actually automate the entire process where it will you know, find keywords for you and it'll automatically add them to your campaign if you let it go that far. It'll um, increase your bids and lower your bids and, and different things like that. Um, but it, it brought a lot of things to light that I didn't realize before. Like one of my best performing ads on Amazon, um, is it's got my own name in there as one of the keyword terms. And like, I thought this through and like, I'm looking at it and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, people were bidding like a dollar to, right. know, for, for my name. Um, now it's up to $3 and 40 cents, <laughs> um, which, you know, but I'm, I'm thinking about it and I'm like, you know, if somebody is going to go in on Amazon in the search box and look for a JD Barker book, they're more than likely going to type in JD Barker in that search box. Um, which means I don't need it, you know, as a keyword, you know, other people may want to use it, but like me personally, there's no reason for me to pay $3 and 40 cents, you know, for somebody to do that. And, and trust me, Amazon will take that $3 and 40 cents and, and, you know, tie it to one of your ads. Um, so even though, you know, and that was like one of my best performing ads on Amazon. So, you know, prior to PrestaZon, I thought, you know, Hey, this, I finally found the formula that works like this one's getting clicked on left and right. You know, I'm spending a lot of money on it, uh, but it's obviously generating some sales. And then I started digging beneath the hood using their, their, their software and realize what was really going on Um, so like i took my own name out of my keywords there's just no point in having that Um, and so those are the kind of things that that it does but like if you want to step back completely from amazon ads using their software you can do it you can set your budgets and and you can kind of you know walk away from it and let their software run the show um which which is very cool i mean i I love ai and and they've got a, a really strong handle on it i'm curious to see where they where they go and i would love to see them you know dig into facebook ads and some of the other platforms um, it hasn't happened yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that down the road.
2: Yeah, I'm excited to talk to him. Uh, I've dabbled with with the, the dashboard, but I haven't implemented it on any of my ads that are running right now because I want to talk to him about. Uh, I want to take a step back and say, what should I be thinking about when I create the ads so that when they get into Presses on, they get optimized? Or, or are there things that we can do? And I think that's a that's a really key component of it because I think for a lot of authors, they get intimidated by even creating the ad in the first place.
1: Yeah, well, it allowed me to see a lot of stuff in real time. Like, and I love to experiment. I like to do things kind of out of the box. Like the other day, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I get BookBub every day. So I wanted to see what would happen if I took the authors that were in a specific BookBub and created an ad that day and launched it on Amazon. Um, you know, cause obviously these are titles that probably aren't at the forefront of Amazon on a daily basis, but the day that book bub hits, they are, you know, which means everybody's going from book and they're jumping into Amazon and they're searching for them. Um, you know, so I figured, you know, if my book was, you know, part of that, you know, one of the, the also bots or one of those other little tickers beneath that, you know, they, they would see that. Um, but what I, I quickly learned is like Amazon doesn't approve these ads fast enough. So oh. like it, it, it takes like a day and a half before, you know, my, my, Book bub ad would get approved, and by that point, you know there's already two other new book bubs that came out. Um, so I think if I could streamline that process, like get an ad approved like right away, um, I think that would actually work very well. Um, you know, because you've got books that you know normally get you know maybe five or ten looks you know during the course of a day on the U.S. Amazon, but on a day of a book bub, they're getting thousands. Um, you know, so that's the kind of thing that I, I like to look at and the Amazon dashboard by itself, you know, even if they did approve that ad immediately, it doesn't give you enough detail. You know, yeah. you, you, you don't see it. Um, the on one does, um, which is nice. Um, the other thing I'm trying to decipher is, you know, like, is it worth all that time? Because, you know, Amazon, you can create ads, you know, that are basically automated on the Amazon right. side where they'll, they'll target them for you. So you don't even have to worry about keywords. And my best performing ads tend to be those. Um, you know, so I don't know if, if it's even worth digging into all this the keyword stuff and, and spending all this time on it or, you know, just doing that. So it's allowing me to, to really experiment, turn things on and off and just kind of see what it does with, you know, from sales and from clicks and, and things along those lines.
2: Yeah. So it's going to be a fun conversation. So make sure you guys all come back for that. So.
1: Yep, absolutely. Cool.
2: To our listeners, we appreciate your support. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend or consider leaving us a review on iTunes. Until next time, have a great week of writing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.